Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is episode 33 on May 10th, 2019. Tonight's episode, we're going to be introducing a new segment that I'm calling the Fresh Five. The concept behind this series is that since Frank's work schedule has made us uh, change a few things around in the past month, one of the things I wanted to do was look into Frank's viewing habits Hmm. because one of, I think, uh, the... Things about you, Frank, is that uh, part of your authority, I guess, of like being able to talk about these movies and come up with these lists is the fact that you've seen so many movies. Mm-hmm. And while we're always talking about movies from the past, usually it's not acknowledged that you like you're still watching like tons of movies like all the time, like rewatching stuff, watching new things. And so I wanted to look into what you've been watching recently and talk about some of those movies. I think it also allows us to talk about some more recent movies right. where we don't normally do that. So um, I think that's good. Um, so how are you feeling tonight? I feel pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long week, but I'm yeah. good. I watched three movies today. Yeah. So what were those? Um, an adaptation of the books of blood, Clive Barker, uh, short stories, um, a documentary called mommy dead and dearest. And a really weird, like, found footage horror film called Be My Cat, a film for Anne. Um, they were fine. Yeah. The the documentary was really good. Uh, the other two were, were, were okay. They were entertaining enough. Yeah. So, what else have you been watching this past month besides what's on this list? Um, I mean, there's the, you know, the five we're going to talk about. Um, I've been watching a decent amount of documentary stuff. Uh, like murder documentaries and whatnot. Um, for some reason, they've been easy for me to watch. I don't know, like where I can just kind of like, like it gives me something to focus on, but it's not like a narrative in the same sense of like a traditional movie. Um, saw Avengers a couple weeks ago. Um, some horror I've watched. I can't remember exactly what. Um, some television, like I watched Chernobyl this week, mm-hmm. the first episode of that. Um, went back and watched some Parks and Recreation while I've been traveling, just because it's easy to watch and it's fun. And I've seen The Office now like three times straight through, so gotta have something else. Um, I don't know, always yeah. something. So you're one of those a lot office of YouTube people? videos. Oh, actually, do a lot of YouTube. Is that the stuff that like I don't understand why you watch it? Like the no, I mean, well, of- you know, they announced Borderlands three. recently and so there's been a lot of borderlands 3 like footage leaks and gameplay discussion and stuff and i've been watching Mm -hmm. them um you know my son and i play the card game magic the gathering so i watch a lot of that's what i was talking about yeah i watch a lot of videos of like people just opening magic the gathering booster packs Uh um which is like really cathartic to me for some reason um toy unboxings like i like watching that stuff and like videos that talk about like old toy lines and stuff like from a nostalgic perspective um i watched a video today actually about dino riders Hmm. the cartoon in the toy series yeah i I remember dino riders yeah Yeah. that was uh, that was a good use of 18 minutes of my life it's one of my one of my biggest guilts is related to dino riders why you you don't know about that i don't know that um one of the few things like i remember my father himself actually buying me was a Dino Riders VHS. Hmm. I and do then remember I, the story. Then I found it years later and I realized I had never watched the Dino Riders. 
VHS and I felt like extreme guilt and I still think about that like to this day sometimes. Of, Did you watch it when you found it? It was that and then my grandparents bought me God, Godzilla versus Megatron. And Megalon. I, Megalon. Godzilla versus um, Megatron. Be and, and, I, and I never well, I never watched the movie so how would I know? Right. And I, I never watched that either and to this day I still feel like extreme guilt sometimes about how I never watched those. So don't feel too guilty. I, I'm assuming that the Godzilla versus Megalon they bought you was the one they used to sell at Woolworth and Kmart? Yes. Like Absolutely. the two for five dollar yep. VHS, yeah, it's not a very good quality copy of it, yeah. and that's not actually a very good Godzilla movie from that time period. Like, mm. there's much better ones than that, um, like Ghidorah and um, Mechagodzilla, and um, the Mothra stuff is better. And honestly, just like Godzilla is better, God Me- Megalon's mediocre, and Dino Riders. Like, don't don't feel guilty. Right. Did Did you watch Dino Riders? Like when you rediscovered the VHS tape? No. Right. Yeah, there's it's I watched some of it on television when I was a kid, but I wasn't that into it. But I I, I think I wanted it at that time because I was a kid and it's yeah. like, "Oh, I want that VHS." And, and he bought it for you and then you never saw it. Right. <clears throat> you ain't missing nothing. Yeah. No, he's dead now anyway. It's oh, classy. <laughs> and true. <laughs> okay, so you want to go ahead and um get off my trauma and right. neuroses and <clears throat> go get, ahead to this get into list. My own. Okay, so Number five on your list for this week is the 2019 film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, directed by Terry Gilliam, starring Adam Driver, Jonathan Price, and Stellan Skarsgård. It has a 64% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 71% from audiences. Do you want to explain a little bit about the maybe the history of this movie, sure. the movie, and um, what you like about it? So, I honestly didn't realize that he had made this movie, and I've <laughs> known about his... Um, like, I, for a long time, especially in the 90s, um, really excited about the idea of Gilliam making a Don Quixote movie because Quixote is one of my, like, one of my favorite stories. Like, I really like the the source material, um, the Miguel de Cervantes book. Um, one of the first books I actually read in Spanish, too, uh, in high school. Um, so there would always be, like, rumors that it was in production and Johnny Depp was attached to it and John Hurt was attached to it. And... I think maybe, um, like Robert Duvall at one point, like there's like, it would always like, they would start production or they would have like funding lined up and then something would fall through. So when I saw this movie was released and it was just released a few weeks ago, like about a month ago, I think exactly. It was like April 10th or something like that. Um, I marked out like really hard. I got super excited cause I've wanted to see, like, I, I love, I don't know that Gilliam has maintained necessarily the highest level of quality in his movies, but when you go back and look at some of the stuff Gilliam's done, like he's done some fantastic movies and some of my, like, I love Brazil. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I like Jabberwocky a lot. I like, um, Baron Munchausen, even though it's kind of like reviled. I think time bandits is fantastic. Like I love Gilliam's fear and loathing is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And we, and we just talked about, um, you know, his, his work on 12 monkeys right. last week. So there's a lot of like real talent there that Gilliam has. And you know, the the mix of like the fantastical with the mundane and Don Quixote kind of lends itself like perfectly to Gilliam's style. So super excited to see this movie. I didn't know anything about the plot beyond like the basics because it's sort of the same plot that he's been working with since, you know since, since the early 90s. Since like the late yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but I sort of went in like completely blind to it and like really excited to see it. Um, I'll be honest, like I was a little disappointed in it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So basically the idea is there's this hotshot like advertising director, commercial director, uh, played by Adam Driver, um, who's filming a commercial in Spain. Um, he sort of has lost his passion for things. Like he's just kind of an asshole about stuff. Um, very much an elitist, very much, I don't know, just like difficult to work with. You fool on his own image, I suppose. Um, through a series of events, like he comes to find his student film that he made, which was about Don Quixote. And it sort of inspires him to go and like explore and sort of like revisit what, you know, kind of like through a series of mishaps and kind of mirroring, mirroring Don Quixote's quests, you know, in the books sort of rediscover what it means to like care about things and be someone who can invest in, you know, something like in individuals and in the idea of adventure, like, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful day to start an adventure or whatever is one of the lines in the movie. Um, Jonathan Price plays Quixote, uh, probably my favorite performance in the movie. Um, he does a really yeah. great job as, um, Javier, who's this guy that back when, um, Adam Driver's character was filming the Don Quixote film, cast this shoemaker, this cobbler as Don Quixote. And the guy sort of like, sort of went crazy and believed that he was Don Quixote. So he's lived like these, whatever, 15 years, like believing that he's this fictional character. Um, and their adventures through the Spanish countryside, um, they move back and forth between obvious fantasy and like dream and then like reality. And um, to the end where the ultimate end result is that Adam driver kind of becomes Don Quixote himself. Um, because he hits himself, he gets hit on the head while he's jousting with a windmill. Um, like the tradition, like the classic, like Quixote, like scene, um, and sort of goes off with his love, like continuing on these adventures. Um, I think that, I think it's got some really beautiful stuff in it. Um, you can tell that Gilliam loves like the Spanish countryside and the way that he films it. Um, the plains and the hills and like the blue sky and the way that he films like the woods and even small things like these little like rundown ramshackle villages. Like there's obviously a great amount of affection in Gilliam and, you know, for the story and for the setting. Um, I think it's kind of ruined by Adam Driver. Like I absolutely despise Adam Driver in this role. And I don't know if it's because I just don't really like Adam Driver as an actor, period. Like, I don't think he's a very good actor. <clears throat> I think at best, like, he's serviceable, and I think at worst, he's just really kind of grating, and I just, I, I can't stand looking at him, and I hate his voice, and I just hate the way he delivers lines. Like, he always seems really petulant. Like, whether he's Kylo Ren or the boyfriend from Girls, you know, he just he's just kind of like a oily, unctuous dick. Like, I just don't care about him. And I kind of feel like it's the same character here. And it's like, he's supposed to be your hero, but it just takes forever to get to that point. And you just kind of hate him the entire time, I think. Um, and I know that that's the point. Like, I know that what Gilliam is showing is there's this guy who has moved so far from his center that it takes these, like, ridiculous, fantastical scenarios to bring him back to find, like, you know, the person that had, like, this sense of wonder and this sense of artistry and... Maybe in some ways that's Gilliam commenting on himself or something. I don't know. 
Um, although I don't feel like Gilliam ever, like, even though I like stuff like Tideland and whatnot, like, I don't think you're that great. Um, like, I don't think the Gilliam ever like lost his sense of artistry, but the Adam Driver character is terrible. Um, and it really is like kind of crass in a lot of ways. Like the stuff with, um, like the vodka magnet who is like mistreating people and, and honestly, is any of that stuff even really happening sometimes? Like it feels like maybe it's fake and maybe he's just misinterpreting things. And I don't know. It's just really, um, it really is Adam driver that I hate about the movie. Cause like I'm, as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about scenes and like how beautiful they are. Like when they tricked, um, Jonathan price as Don Quixote into thinking that he's like flying to the moon. Like that's a beautiful scene and it's incredibly well filmed Mm -hmm. and it's, magical and then he crashes down to earth and it's just so sad like to see this old man like have all of his his like illusions of life just destroyed and realize that he's a joke like Mm -hmm. he's not some noble knight that he's just some broken old man you know that is basically there to like be mocked Mm -hmm. and it's really like it's it's heartbreaking to see that and it's this beautiful scene and i just feel like it's just ruined by adam driver like two minutes later you know, like trying to go up to save the Dulcinea character, um, Alexandria or whatever her name is. Um, so I don't know. God, there, even the CGI, which I think like towards the end of the movie, they do CGI of like Adam Driver fighting the giants. And like, I even think that that like looks really cool in it. It's it kinda, is. It's, it's a really good callback sort of to, to time bandits and the way the time bandits looks uh-huh. and... Like, it's it's a fun scene, and I just can't get over the fact that I just can't stand Adam Driver. Like, I'm watching, I'm like, God, I wish this movie was over. So, Chris, <coughs> so Chris Nashawadi from Entertainment Weekly says that Driver is the film's real saving grace. His snippy delivery can turn throwaway lines and labored wordplay into barbed poison darts, and he moves with a slapstick physicality of a silent-era movie star. But the busy storyline whizzing and worrying around him is just too much to save with too many gags that fail to land. You can't help but root for a maverick like Gilliam and his quest of a movie. He's an original in the industry with too few of them. But the man who killed Don Quixote is a surreal aimless hash. So I don't I don't see that. You don't see that? Driver, no. I mean, I do think that I would say that I like Driver in this more than you do. I do think I do think his physicality I agree with to some degree. I mean, maybe that's overstating it there, but I do think physically he's very gifted. I think he's very gifted. Okay, so there's there's a scene early on when his boss is in town. His boss is this Stellan Skarsgard, yeah. Stellan Skarsgard. And the the name of the character is the boss. Mm -hmm. And Stellan Skarsgard's wife is trying to seduce him. And he just wants to watch his student film that he's Mm -hmm. found on DVD. And Skarsgård comes back and he's got to escape. And okay, so from like a slapstick perspective, sure, that's that's fine. And is he fine in like doing that? Yeah, okay, he is. I think I think there's a little a lot of scenes like that, though, with like his neurotic like movements and stuff like that. Like when the little boy is like pissing on his bike and he comes out and there's just like a physicality to him that I think he's really good at emoting through his body. Um, it's very stagey. Um, so that could be hammy, I suppose, to yeah. some people, but mm-hmm. I think he's very good about expressing, I, he reminds me of somebody, 
but it's like he's a combination of two or three people. You know and, who he kind of reminded me of? This is yeah. going to sound really dumb. Yeah. He sort of reminded me of Maybe. Steve Martin. Hmm. Like a lot of times in the movie, especially like the jerk era, Steve Martin, Mm -hmm. where it's like, like his limbs are moving independent of his core in ways that would feel cartoony if they were more exaggerated, but they're like restrained enough where it doesn't feel cartoony. I can see a little bit of that. I can see a little bit of that. Um, He's obviously not as like emotive as Steve Martin, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's because Steve Martin can actually act. I don't know. Um, or Steve Martin really is hammy. Right. I mean, well, he's he's I mean, exaggerated for comedy. Exactly. Fact. But it's like on purpose. Sure. I don't know. Like, I just, I, I think it's, I just don't like Adam Driver. Yeah. I think I just don't think. Oh, no. I think he works pretty well in this role. What did you, uh, oily, unctuous prick? Oily, unctuous prick. Yeah. I, I, I think that works for this specific but You know what? And case. 100% it's what he's supposed to be. Sure. But I feel like that's just Adam Driver being Adam Driver. Hmm. Like, all I can think about is that guy in Girls. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I don't yeah. even like that show that much. But, like, yeah. I hate that character so much. And Kylo Ren is just, like, a bitch, man. Like, yeah. and this is Adam Driver. Like, I, and I'm really kind of, I have really mixed feelings because I'm super excited about Jim Jarmusch doing a fucking zombie movie. Except that it's goddamn Adam Driver is the fucking lead in this movie. You know, one of the... Two or three people that he the does have qualities of, I just it just dawned on me is um, Brandon R- Ruth. He he's I mean obviously not in the looks department, but um I think in some of the some of his acting there's a little bit of that there. Okay, so I agree to a point. Whereas I feel like Brandon Ruth is self parody most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like you look at one one of my like. One of my favorite movies of the past 15 years is Scott Pilgrim. Like, I think Scott Pilgrim's right. an amazing, just fun movie. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a great, like, throwback fantasy. And Brandon Ruth is, like, the vegan Superman mm-hmm. in that movie is so spot-on perfect sure. and hilarious. And it's because he's making fun of himself. Yeah. And you feel like he has the awareness to do that and it comes off as charming almost Uh even though the character is an absolute prick it's charming in the way that he plays him i don't think adam driver has that self-awareness i think adam driver is just a shit like maybe he's not and no offense to adam driver (laughs) as like a person but i I know he's gonna be pissed when he hears this right right? (laughs) (laughs) jesus if that ever happens he'll come and whine at me um with his stupid hair. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't well, know. Do you, uh, so do you think uh, the, originally who would have been cast in this in the 1990s was, Johnny, was Johnny Depp. Was Johnny Depp was the was first attached one. attached to it. Do you see Depp? I don't see Depp in this role, honestly. No. But I mean, who knows? Yeah. Like, like, you don't see. It, it's hard to picture Depp in this role because you think about Depp as, I don't know, Hunter Thompson and Jack Sparrow and... Whatever else he's done. But I mean, like, maybe early 90s Depp would have been fantastic in this. Maybe. And also, I think one of the other things that bothers me, too, is I feel like as much as Gilliam, like, wanted to make this movie, I don't really feel like it's enough of a love letter to Don Quixote. Like, I don't think it's enough of an adaptation of the story. And I know that it's not supposed to be a straight adaptation. Like, I'm not looking for, like, Man of La Mancha. But... It just feels way too snarky. 
I guess. I don't know. So David Rooney from The Hollywood Reporter says that the responsibility of the creative artist and the transformative capacity of imaginary worlds should have been highly personal themes for Gilliam. And yet nothing here really coalesces into a lucid through line. The film also skims half-baked points about the commercialization of dreams, the corruption of wealth and its manipulative privileges, even the divisiveness of religion glancing back at Spain's Islamic history when Moors, Christians, and Jews cohabitated. But whether these threads were hacked beyond comprehensibility uh, or were never adequately developed into the, to, into the screenplay to begin with is anyone's guess. Right, like, I feel I, like it's one of those things where, and I, I agree with, like, almost, I don't know that necessarily, I agree with, like, most of what's being said there. Mm-hmm. It's like, neither of us really watch Game of Thrones, but we've read the books, right? Yeah. And you almost feel at this point, like, whenever that, what, what is this book, like, the sixth book now will come out, or the fifth book, whatever number it is, six? Six, I think. Like, it's been yeah. so long that it's going to be this bloated thing that, like, when you start something and it takes you decades to finish it, like, inevitably it's going to feel fractured, I think. Right. And to me, maybe that's part of the problem, is that it's not a fresh idea. It's just an idea that's, like, stopped and started and stopped and started so many times. And revised. Yeah. That like, it's it, like, the, like, the original story was not a director, right. even. Right, so. and because he, he was, like, it's a guy that's, like, pushed back in time or right. something. yeah. Which, to me, is, like, a much more fascinating... Almost like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court was set in, like, you know, Quixote's era Spain. Like, sure. that's, to me, like, a fascinating and fun idea, whereas this mm-hmm. is just like, uh, like, okay, Terry Gilliam, like, yeah. I don't fucking care. Like, you like you were talking earlier about scenes, and that this is how I felt, was that I feel that there's a lot of great scenes in this. Right. And it's extremely well filmed. It is. And I think Jonathan Price is mashed for him. Yes, very good. But... This starts out as a tale of redemption in some ways for this really just unlikable dude who's sold out. But it feels like it's heading that way. Is and it and 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 I think the movie wants you to believe that somehow he's kind of redeemed himself by picking up the mantle of Kyoto and continuing on. Maybe he just went but, nuts. Right. So I don't I don't see I don't see and and there's and it's so that story is so fractured throughout with all these little pit stops along the way because it's a, it's a little too long this movie for what it is and i think there's so too many pit stops along the way that right. it loses sight of that consistently so it does feel cobbled together this screenplay over the years here's here's my analogy then in terms of a tale of redemption because i kept trying to find that in it mm-hmm. and i don't think that he ever comes close to even feeling like he's trying to redeem himself until the last 15 minutes of that movie when he's trying to save her from getting burned alive. Mm-hmm. Look at something like, to call back to the movie we talked about before, look at Uncle Buck. Mm-hmm. Uncle Buck is a tale of a guy redeeming himself sure. from being like a selfish, lackadaisical like scumbag to being like an upstanding guy that's like worthy of being a father figure. And Buck has like a little victory then falls short then has a little victory and falls short but it builds to him finally doing the right thing and gaining the trust of everyone and Grissoni or whatever Adam Driver's character's name is is just a shithead for an hour and like 40 minutes and then oh 
now he's all right for 15 minutes. Like, there's no redemption there. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't care about that guy at that point. Right. It's also because I fucking hate Adam Driver, so I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and move on from the Adam Driver uh, movie. <laughs> so Just wait till that Jarmish movie comes out, dude. We're talking about that shit. Okay. Probably hate that, too. Because of Adam Driver? Probably. So, number four on your list is The Clove Hitch Killer from 2018, directed by Duncan Skiles, stars Dylan McDermott, Charlie Plummer, and Samantha Mathis. It has a 76% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 67% from audiences. Do you want to describe the plot of this movie and what you like about it? So, it's a serial killer movie um, that starts out with a young kid uh, who's Christian, you know, clean-cut, Midwest, like, all-American boy. Boy Scout. Boy Scout, right? Um, Upstanding member of his church is making out with his girlfriend in his dad's truck. His girlfriend finds like some BDSM pornography and blames him, you know, like accuses of of being his sort of causes like a falling out between him and his best friend and him and the girl and like him in the eyes of the community. Um, But it also makes him start to kind of like distrust his father. Um, so simultaneously, there's this idea that there's this killer that's been operating in the area for years, um, that they've dubbed the clove hitch killer because he uses this specific, knot, the clove hitch to like bind his victims. Um, so the kid finds in his father's like underneath the house in this like secret basement, like this box of stuff or no, I guess he originally finds stuff like in the shed he finds a Polaroid in the shed. Yeah, and then initially. that leads him to go in like... And, anyway. and bondage mags. Right. So, over the course of events, he begins to suspect his father of being this killer. Um, he meets this girl whose mother was killed by the Clovich killer, right? Yes. Um, and they kind of form a bond. Um, and then, you know, they're like... He's suspicious of the dad, and then he like thinks that maybe his suspicions are unfounded, and then becomes suspicious again. And they find out that his dad really is the Clovich killer. Um, really fucking tense and great scene when the dad is about to kill this woman, where they kind of break into the house and save her. Um, and the dad almost kills the girl, but then in the end, um, they end up shooting the father and burying him. Um, which is kind of like a the so one thing I really don't like about the movie is the ending of it mm-hmm. um, because it's really tense and really well done up to that point, um, including like the psychology of, and I'm going to say it's Dylan McDermott, right? Because I always want to say Dermot Maroney. It's Dylan McDermott. Right. Yeah. Um, the psychology of him, like him, like waiting until the family goes away to like kind of dress up in like women's clothes and like well, manipul- manipulating the family to go away yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Um, his performance is fantastic in it. Like yes. it's one of the, I I think that people playing serial killers have the tendency to overact or to make themselves too creepy or detached or like put mannerisms in their actions that kind of like wink to the camera. Like, look, I'm like psychotic. Um, and he basically just plays himself except for when he's, I think the role is, and and this is going to sound like a slam, and it's not because I think he's really good in this, but it feels a little derivative of Walter White, like in the sense of like the the upstanding, 
before Walter White becomes like Heisenberg. Like the, the idea right. that like this this kind of like stand up but kind of meek guy who's in you know big in his church and in the Boy Scouts and is always positive and have these has these dad puns and right. uh, and and he never loses that throughout the film and I'll, I'll be honest like also towards the end I really wish not that he should have just went stark raving mad but it's like I wish a little bit of that would have dropped towards the end so I actually like don't... in the midst in the midst of like him trying to kill that woman and the thing with the son and his friend, uh, like at the very end in that scene, I wish a little bit that I would have dropped. It it made me laugh, and I don't know if it was I don't know if it was supposed to, like when he's still sitting there trying to like. There's nothing menacing about him calling. It's so sincere when he's calling him Bud. Like, yeah, hey you know, Bud, just give me the gun, Bud. It, it it's it made me laugh because it's so absurd. Right, but see, like, but I, I don't know if that was the intention or not. I I think it was, and I really like that because it shows that. It's not trying to pass it off as, like, some alternate personality or yeah. some, like, mask. It's like, this guy really is just this psychopathic killer that's, it's so in, ingrained in his person. Like, it's not excusing him or giving you a reason to, like, let him off the hook. Like, he just is a monster. And that's why it's so easy for him just to be himself because he is that thing. He just learned to hide, like, the negative aspects of it really well. Um, when they're stalking him, like when they're following him mm-hmm. and especially like when they find the truck at the house where he's like broken in and tied the woman up, like all that stuff is really well done. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of the scene when she's in the house and she's interrupted him, mm-hmm. um, in like basically like filming himself in like this autoerotic asphyxiation scenario mm-hmm. and the son has to save her by like kind of like distracting him so she can escape like there's real palpable tension there where you honestly don't know if he's gonna like kill her or not so yeah there's tension throughout this entire movie the movie i agree with you like the the ending is the is where it falls apart it doesn't it does it doesn't it stumbles the landing at the end to me but watching this movie i put it on last night when i got back from the award ceremony and Brandy sat here and she was tired and was going to go to bed and she ended up watching the entire thing because once it starts, you're like, what the hell is going on here? If you don't know anything about it and I didn't read anything about it beforehand and what the hell is going on? And then it's like, you're really invested in whether the father is or is not the killer and it just keeps bleeding you. It's paced extremely well in terms of like giving you little clues like of for against and then the point of view shift comes and then, you know, you're kind of attached to that to me in some way, you know, and then like it builds up to that twist. Then it goes back in time. And that's where to me a little bit, it starts to unravel. And then the landing of the actual ending in the last 10 minutes kind of just falls flat to me. But, um, to the point where she's like, I stayed awake for that. (laughs) ending which i kind of felt similar right. to like the ending just is just a little flat but i think it's a paced extremely well extremely tense all the way through and the other thing i really liked about it was looking at it from and i think both of us knew more than me but i think we both know serial killer stuff fa- fairly well like different mo's and like you know different killers and those kind of things i thought it was i thought it was true in the sense even if like i 
I don't know if I take his personality of sticking with it all the way through without being getting menacing at all if I see that. But I do love the fact that it's like he doesn't really start to unravel until he's made to burn his trophies. Right. And that's when, and then even then, he doesn't want to kill because the whole thing with him dressing up in women's clothes and taking pictures of himself is somehow to sate the fantasy. Right. And he can't do it. Like, he's putting, he has a, a mask on of like that makes him look like a woman. Like, he's trying to take pictures so he still has a trophy of something that he can fantasize about. And then he's, feels the urge to kill to replace the to get another trophy again that he can fantasize about because that's what's holding him from that's why he's been dormant for 10 years and i think that's a really clever storytelling it is clever um uh thing for a for a serial killer movie it's also um i don't know there's very like and i i fluctuate over the course of my life as being like really interested in serial killers and not Mm -hmm. like Having much interest in them, um, just from like a humanistic standpoint, like it just feels like creepy um, and voyeuristic. But like, there's very few serial killer movies that I think can, and you you just described it really well, that accurately capture that sense of like, I don't know, like like that the killer is almost like an unknowable thing, mm-hmm. like. And without making them, like, a supernatural monster, keeping them, like, grounded in, like, the human world, but still, and not making them, like, maniacal or cackling or whatever, like, like, one of the biggest failings, in my opinion, of Seven is when Kevin Spacey starts to talk. Mm. And then monologues for, you know, 10 minutes in the car, and it's like, well, you just destroyed all the mystery of, like, why Mm. this guy, like, you know, of, that makes this guy scary. By just having him be like a whiny like jackass, and I I like the fact that they don't do that with um with the killer in this movie, and mm-hmm. I also really like the like the philosophical and moral quandary of they had the opportunity to give families of the victims of these women that were murdered closure mm-hmm. by exposing the father as being the killer right. by leaving the body there or incapacitating him and turning him into the police and choose to save his family alone from that embarrassment, even though they don't know ever what happened to him, you know, that he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, and then I, I really like that idea that he, even though I don't think the ending necessarily works well, like, I still think it's a really interesting question is like, what do you do in that situation? Like, sure. do you sacrifice your family's reputation and happiness for the sake of others, or do you? you and know, it was, because and all, it was it was certainly Tyler's decision because his friend makes it clear like this is what you wanted at the end. Right. So it was certainly his decision to save his own family as and right. not put him through that grief. And ultimately, he saved like other families. Like sure. he saved a large number of people, probably. But I don't know. Yeah. It was a really small movie. It was something that I had. I mean, to your point, like. I was, I think, flipping through Prime one night. Hulu. It's on. No, I, I, I paid to watch it on. Prime. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's um, on Hulu. For free I was flipping right through. Now. Well, I, I watched it like the first like mm-hmm. day or two that it was out. Gotcha. Um, so I was flipping through, and I was like, oh, well, this seems like interesting. Like yeah. I should check this out, and uh-huh. um, it completely caught me off guard. Like, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was, honestly. Yeah. So, but yeah, really, um, 
Like if you enjoy serial killer movies, I think it's definitely worth watching and certainly one of the best examples in the past like couple decades of like a single standalone movie that deals with a fictional killer. Hmm. That's the other thing too is like I I sort of feel I don't know if dirty is the right word, but I feel like guilty almost watching movies that are about like an actual killer. Hmm. Like I watched um the Bundy yeah. Netflix original the other day right. and thought it was just terrible. Like mm-hmm. I hated it. Yeah. Um, because I thought that Zac Efron was so good in it. Oh, that's another thing that I watched. Yeah. Um, I thought that Efron was so good as Bundy, like spot on perfect, like mannerisms, inflection, body movements, like everything was just like, like you can tell that dude just watched as much as he could and like really does a good job, like becoming that character. But it almost felt like a love letter to Ted Bundy. And that's the thing when it's like about real killers is it's like, are you glorifying the killer? Are you like making the movie based on the titillation of, you know, that's what like, we'll, we'll talk about it at length in the future because it's part of a list, but like Zodiac, I think does a good job of removing you from the, removing the killer almost from the equation entirely except for a couple of isolated scenes and making it more about the investigation from like a journalistic standpoint and a police procedural standpoint, which Mm -hmm. makes it much more interesting than making me feel like, I don't know. Like I just hate it when those real life movies kind of like glorify the killer. Sure. So, so Brian Tallarico of um, RogerEbert.com says that this movie goes off the rails about halfway through, he says it takes a drastic point of view turn about halfway, answers any lingering questions, and becomes almost an entirely different film. I'm down with thrillers that try to shake up their viewers with turns like this um, movie takes, but Skiles doesn't land it. In the end, the point of view switch feels more like a cheap trick to get to a shocking moment than anything that dramatically enhances the film. Do you feel about that? No. I don't. I mean, I don't know how to, like, the counterpoints that I have, except that I feel like it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the fact that the movie remains small and really just focuses on the three main characters in it, yeah. like, with, you know, the ancillary characters just kind of, like, serving to enhance your appreciation of those three. Um like, I think it really is just about, like, these two kids trying to find, like, closure. Yeah. One on the side of, like, her mother's murder and the other on the side that maybe my father's responsible for it. I found an interesting question about the about that point of view switch. Because I really like it when it switches point of view to the father, to the killer. And then you have the surprise of the son suddenly being there when he's trying to kill this woman with a, with a gun. Right. And then that's when that flashback happens. And it's like, if I'm being hypercritical, I think that flashback to the son, to to Tyler pretending he's going away to camp and not going to camp. Right, and and actually I think that whole thing, it's probably lasts about 20 to 25 minutes almost. It's, it's pretty long. And I think it's too long. I think it would have been, I think it, that twist would have been served better had you compacted a little bit of that scene to get back to the climax. Right. Yeah. And that, that, more that quickly, if I'm being hypercritical, right. like, so, but I don't think it's cheap necessarily. Yeah. It, like, again, like I don't find it cheap. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely like, uh, it's a quote unquote trick 
you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's well, a, it's very Lost esque. It's a suspense thriller. Like, sure. That's just yeah. I don't know. It's just what yeah. it is. But that whole time manipulation is something that would happen yeah. in Lost all the time, where it's like suddenly it's like. Oh, Maybe character like, you forgot about or right. wasn't expecting, and then you show the flashback of what happened. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy Lost. I don't know. Yeah, so right. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, I'm not. It's not a criticism. It's just a, it's a very. It's been done. Besides that, right, it's right. Like, I mean, I think this movie is definitely worth watching, and it's yeah. it's nice to know it's free on Hulu. So if you subscribe to Hulu, yeah, go nuts. Um. Okay. So number three, we move to another serial killer movie. Mm. It's uh from. 1983, which we just finished that right. 83 B-Horror movie list um, a few weeks ago. But it's a movie called Angst. Um, it stars, uh, or I'm sorry, it's directed by Gerald Cargill. Um, it stars Erwin Letter. Um, and really, there's no other actors to mention other than him, I think, in this movie. Because they're so, they're so sparse. But... It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, but the caveat is it has five reviews. And it has a 74% from audiences. So do you want to go ahead and tell us just a little bit about this movie? It's a pretty simple concept. And then what you like about it so much. Right. So there's a guy who randomly murdered an old woman. Or randomly shot an old woman. Was put in jail. Was released from jail. And on the first day of his release. Commits a home invasion. Kills three people. And then gets caught. I mean that's basically the premise of the movie. Hmm. Um, unnamed serial killer, uh, played by I don't even know the actors. Irwin Letter. Um, it's it's an incredibly uncomfortable and claustrophobic movie in a lot of ways, and one of the things that makes it so uncomfortable is again to my to my point about Clove Hitch, like. I like it when the killer isn't, like, glorified or, mm-hmm. like, there's not, like, a mystique to him. And this is the ultimate example of where there's absolutely no glorification or mystique to this guy. Because instead of being, like, some competent, like, alpha predator out stalking his prey, I mean, he's the exact opposite. He's an incompetent mm-hmm. guy that just is, I don't know, like, a murderer, basically. Like, he's got this compulsion compulsion right and like he can't help himself and you know so he tries to kill he he hails a taxi wants to kill the woman that's driving the taxi she sort of like susses out the fact that he's up to something and he has to escape into the woods um that scene is incredibly tense like when he's sitting there trying to like um what is it a belt or something that he's like no it's shoelaces shoelaces right he's clumsily trying to take out his shoelaces from his shoe and she sees him and you're like what are you doing Uh, just keep driving um the scenes when he's going through there's just there's something about the way this movie is filmed where you feel just as like lost and confused as he is i think Mm -hmm. um and it's the way the camera like sweeps at times it's the angles that it's filmed at um there's tracking shots um that it's very much i think wells might be one of the first to do it in citizen kane where it actually tracks with the actor yeah um and speed like speeds up slows down with the actor it does that a lot of times in tracking shots yeah like the so he's 
the the house where he murders the family and it's a it's a mother a daughter and a son um incredibly tense like as he's staking out the house and he's not doing it well like he doesn't know what he's doing like this isn't a guy who's like a like you know you watch something like um manhunter or red dragon or whatever you know where the killer is like this expert who's like using like diamond cutters to like cut out circles of the window and sneak in and murder this family and it's like this dude's just an idiot like he's smashing a window and breaking in he has no idea what he hopes to find he's just doing it yeah because he's compelled to do it it's like with nail if he was a serial killer right (laughs) um Yeah. yeah like sweaty and like yeah eating sausages inappropriately right um that's the other thing too is there's a scene early on like after he gets paroled where he's eating sausages in a a pub and he's like like oogling these two women because he wants to kill him, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have any like idea of how to do it. He just wants to do it. Yeah. And that actually like calls back in the end, like he's in the same exact position. And that's how he gets caught. Um, his murders are accidental. Mm-hmm. Like, even though, you know, he, he murders the, the daughter like purposefully with a knife. It's not because he actually wanted to kill her. It's just because she was getting away from him. And then it just took over. Like it all feels very, very manic and very, I don't know. For a guy that directed, you know, four movies and only this one is the only one I've ever seen. Um, and never directed any feature films afterwards. Like it's a really well done. Like I hate terms like fever dream or whatever, but it just, it, it feels like. chaotic and inevitable i don't know like it's just there's just this crazy feeling of like like oh my god just stop and like he doesn't stop and he's too insane to realize like he knows that he's done something he shouldn't do but he can't stop himself from continuing to try to do it sure and like was if he's not like an idiot he might be able to kill more people too it's just that he's sure which he plans to do in the diner at the end again right where he's going to plan on mur- he's I, i'm going to murder all these people mm-hmm. you think because uh, the whole thing that's masterful is it's all voiceover right there's very little dialogue in the beginning and the in the end there's some dialogue between other characters otherwise it's really just his him talking to himself as he commits these actions and he even says at the end that because there's something in him that feels some sympathy for the victims, pity for the victims, but he says, I can't stop to think about that because, right. you know, um, there's other things he has to do. And well, no, because he knows that he belongs in jail too. That's the other sure. thing. Like he knows yeah. he shouldn't be released from jail. Right. Yeah. And he's just going to do it again. Sure. It's interesting because it was based on an actual like murderer, um, an Austrian murderer, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, um, from okay. like the late late seventies, maybe mm-hmm. um, almost exactly the same sequence of events where like yeah. he had been in jail for shooting a woman, and then he got out, and he ended up murdering three people. Um, this is it's kind. Of, I mean, I I hate that it's kind of hackneyed, but it's it it really is like watching a train wreck. It is in some ways like you can't take your eyes off of it as it's happening because. One, he's so inept early on that you are, it's curious. Two, his voiceover is paced really well in terms of like just kind of keeping you interested. But then when the murders start, it's just like he's so clumsy. He's so hectic. 
and the and then the way that everything is shot right is so just interesting because I think beyond uh, Cargill, the the cinematographer uh, whose name phonetically have spelled here is um, Zubignyev Rajinsky. <laughs> I don't know. He, I, I looked into him, and it's like he he went off and didn't do he didn't do much in terms of film. He did some shorts. He won an Oscar for a short, but most of it is painting and you know different types of art that he, that he's involved with in the art world, but. The cinematography in this movie is incredible. It is. And then there's stuff that Cargill is doing that's way ahead of its time, where early on he's doing that uh, uh, body mounted camera front right. shot that uh, Aronofsky loves so much um, from when he uses it in Pie and Requiem and stuff like that. I, I always consider it the 1979. Oh, yeah, right. Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> right. But it's like that that whole thing, like he, I, I mean, that's 83 that he's like. Yeah, I actually it found it kind of surprising that, um, especially that opening scene when he's walking to the woman's house when he shoots her, mm-hmm. um, to see it. And I was like, man, this is like, this feels like this should be like 10 years later. Sure. Than what it is. And I mean, he's doing stuff that Lynch starts doing in things like Fire Walk With Me of these close-ups on features of the body or the face like yeah. like when he when he's eating the sausage oh my you were God, talking that's so about disgusting. It's, oh it's gross but it's like how different is that from lynch doing the close-ups of the cream corn of the right. sucking being sucked into the mouth and then the sound editing in this and the sound effects yeah which ties in with his character because the sounds are so amplified because he's so because because the compulsion is coming over right, him because he's amplified right like every little thing is like you know you're you're kind of in his perspective yeah. of all that being amplified so even his own eating is amplified to him and um and it does get quiet after the killing like when he's talking about how he actually feels at peace it actually does get quieter like as he's doing these things like the that that sounds not amplified and then as soon as he feels at peace if you, I don't know if you noticed, like the sound starts amplifying slowly again because that compulsion's coming back again. Um, brilliant! I thought the, there was so much about just the filmmaking aspect of this that I was shocked by. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I had no idea what this movie was before I watched it. I don't even mm-hmm. know what prompted me to watch it. It just mm-hmm. is it on Prime or where where was it? I had to I had to rent it. It, it must be on Shutter or Maybe, something. Yeah. It's it's somewhere where I have access to it, and it came up as a free movie, and I was like, oh well, I'll watch this shit. Nineteen eighty three. That's I don't even know what this movie is. Yeah, I was pretty blown away by yeah. it. Like, uh, I yeah. thought, um, and the dog, like the little like uh, what what are those called? Um, oh right, it's um, the hot dog looking dogs. Yeah, um, Dash Hound. Yeah, I thought it added levity to the movie a little bit. Yeah, but I was also horrified because I didn't know what he's going to do to the dog. Which he does not kill the dog for people that are like sensitive to that. Um, in fact, it becomes like, like his buddy kind of right. like. Um, but um, but I I thought that the dog just falling around was horrifying. Like the idea that this dog's just now taking him as the master almost is just falling around. Hey, what's going on? I thought it was funny, horrifying, and yeah, it's just an odd you know, movie. The odd other movie. interesting thing too about it is that there's no glorification of any of the deaths in it. No. Like in most movies, the death is a buildup, or it's sure. like a, 
like the actual murder itself becomes like a release point for you as the viewer that like you've built this tension and then like they do it but it's Mm -hmm. like because he's so inept like the deaths are accidental almost like even Mm -hmm. though he's murdering these people it's not because you know again like he's not some alpha predator that's out to like murder him he's just an idiot right that can't help himself but still like is killing these people and it almost like doesn't give you any release either as the viewer from yes like what you're experiencing which i really like a lot yeah that's really is it's like an ensnares you and doesn't release you until it's done and and, and it's only like an hour and a half long yeah, it's so short uh maybe not even that it might be like an hour and yeah i think it's like, or something 80, like i think it's like 80 something yeah so it really does just feel like like it, it if it wouldn't, if it would have went longer, you couldn't have done that. I honestly felt like it was gonna be longer. Like when he murders um, the girl in the I don't know what do you call it, like the basement or whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, I was like, all right, well, we must be like halfway through, and at that point, you're like, oh yeah, seventy five percent of the way through the movie. Sure. Yeah, and I was like, holy shit, this movie's almost over. Yeah. Like, I I can't imagine like them sure. wrapping it up. Um, but yeah, really good. Like, uh, if you have the chance to yeah, see it, I think it it's is. worth watching. And if you're going to watch it, make sure that the HD transfer is really good. Um, so I would definitely make sure if you if you have to choose between SD and HD, I definitely watch it in HD. Yeah, I don't like using the term hidden gem, but I think it's definitely like a, a hidden gem to me, at least, of the, the horror genre. Yeah, and just because I do kind of like mar- some market research, I, I looked like five people have done three to five minute reviews on youtube of this and i've i found nobody so that sounds terrible of like name recognition like you know mm-hmm. that is like actually talked about this like on on youtube or you know anything like that <laughs> we're about so, to bust that open huh <laughs> yeah right um <laughs> so it's like I, yeah i so i was surprised when i like went to like horror movie websites or not websites like um youtube channels and stuff like that and i don't i don't see them talking about it which yeah. is which is interesting so yeah i don't know if it was like lost or what um but yeah i didn't know anything about yeah, it i know it was banned in the uk for a while and stuff well, like yeah, that so it was like everything ever made <laughs> sure fucking british okay all right let's go ahead and move on to number two okay okay so number two on your list is 2018's phantom thread directed by paul thomas anderson Starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Leslie Manville, and Vicky Creeps. It is 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 70% from audiences. Hmm. Want to go and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so, Lewis plays a renowned fashion designer in the 1950s. Um, Reynolds Woodcock. Reynolds Woodcock, yeah. yeah. Who's like beloved by the elite um, in London? Um, very, uh, sort of looking for very regimented in his routine. Um, married to his work, um, and not like one of the early scenes in the movie is him like basically dismissing a lover um, who's kind of outlived her charm. Um, his sister manages like the day-to-day affairs and the business aspects. And he's mostly just like the artist, um, becomes enamored of a waitress that he meets while designing a dress for a wealthy client, um, ends up dating and like adopting her as his muse and lover. Um, she, 
begins to like insinuate herself more into his life, like despite his initial, I don't know, like reticence to allow anyone else to like be part of it, including like scenes where he's like visibly angry at her for trying to deviate from, you know, his, his established routine. Uh, the eve of him like preparing a dress for some woman, um, she poisons him Yeah, and he becomes deathly ill and she kind of nurses him back to health. Um, they get married. Uh, and then after like a brief honeymoon, like he finds out that the countess who is one of his like biggest clients is like, I guess seeing somebody else like dressmaker wise and sort of says to his sister that maybe it's time to like move her out. Um, so she fucking poisons him again. Um, I mean, it's a, which he catches on to and allows, right? Because she says that she wants him like weak and vulnerable so she can, I guess like basically like make him response, make, make him dependent on her for his, like his general well being and like caregiving. Um, he poisons his omelet. Um, it's, it's weird because from the perspective of like Paul Thomas Anderson's like general work, it's a very small movie in terms of the scope of the plot and the general like sequence of events. You know, you, you look at stuff like There Will Be Blood and um, Boogie Nights and Magnolia and even like The Master, which I'm not a big fan of, but they're large movies about like big ideas and they take place over there's like a large scope to those movies mm-hmm. whereas this is like very small but in a lot of ways just as powerful and maybe more powerful in some instances um one of my favorite performances by day lewis um who has a lot of them <clears throat> yeah but just an ab- absolute like I don't even know how to describe it. Like complete immersion in a character in terms of like mannerism and delivery. Um, And the way that Anderson films the movie. And we were talking about this offline a little bit. Like there's elements that remind me of like Pal and Pressburger. There's stuff that reminds me of people like Carol Reed. Um, There's camera movements in it that um, remind me in some weird way of Wes Anderson. Um, just in like some tracking shots and it's just, it's a very purposeful, meticulously filmed movie that's just full of like these small moments of interaction between people that have so much power to them. Um, one of my favorite scenes like early in the movie is when maybe not that early, it's like maybe a half hour in, um, when he's basically designing a dress around her body for the first time. And it's just, it's like oddly erotic, but not really because the sister's there. And I don't know. There's just such, such like a weird, like manic passion to the way that Lewis portrays, this guy who's oddly superstitious, you know, like 
obsessed almost to the point of like it being like a crippling I can't think like neurosis about the death of his mother um unable to function without like someone else like functioning for him and yet so completely like in control of himself in certain elements and then like not able to control like any part of his life and it's it's one of the most complete performances and complete characters I think in any of Anderson's films. And I think it's because like when you when you think of Paul Thomas Anderson most of his movies and all of his movies are really like large ensemble pieces. Like True. you can't really point out aside from maybe there will be blood like saying like this is the main character of this movie. I think even the master too does that. Yeah, like, but even the master like moves between so Yeah. It's like the stuff with um, like Jacqueline Phoenix is like its own thing, yeah. and the stuff with um, what's his name? Um, Philip Seymour. Hoffman. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman's its own thing, yeah. and it spans like continents sure. and you know, like huge yeah. amounts of time. But those last three movies, I think, have been much more <laughs> focused on specific characters than the ensemble itself. True, and they all have the theme running through them of these megalomaniacal control freaks that are like type a personalities too right and that's uh-huh. that's that's woodcock yeah but i don't know like it's it's so there's something that i love about like the intimacy of like the sitting room drama like that's mm-hmm. kind of what i look at it as yeah. and like like the austere like British sensibility of like the bedchamber and you know the I don't know whatever like the foyer and just the beauty of like the way that everything looks and it just lends this like fierce like intimacy to everything in this movie and I don't even know the actress who plays um Vicky Creeps yeah yeah like I had never seen her in anything Luxembourg born like actress who yeah I don't know what she's been in honestly but she's fantastic in it yeah um the woman that plays cyril yeah the sister is fantastic in it Mm -hmm. um really like some uncomfortable like really uncomfortable scenes like when um he designs the dress for the uh i don't know what she is the older woman that's like marrying the guy that well it's seemingly she's she's a partial benefactor it seems well she's yeah one of the people that has like consistently like a patron yeah like yeah patronized him and um you know just like taking the dress away from her because she isn't worthy of like representing like the woodcock name and And that's really when he falls in love with her for the first is when she cares about his work so much that she She's the one that goes into the room and takes the dress off of her while she's sleeping. Yeah, because as well, she's feigning sleep, I think. But because she can tell that he's so upset yeah. with the way that, right, like, yeah. this blubbering, mm-hmm. delusional idiot, like, ruining the look of his clothing by mm-hmm. wearing it. I mean, it's just... Like, it's hard to be, I think, to praise enough, especially Daniel Day-Lewis, because I, yeah. I love Daniel Day-Lewis, and... I think in a lot of ways, like, he saves movies that are beneath, like, the performance that he gives it. And particularly, like, we always talk about this, but, like, Gangs of New York, you know, is yeah. 
is a moderately mediocre movie that is like elevated by the fact that he's just so fantastic in sure. it. And I think this is a movie where the performance is met by the brilliance of like the direction and yeah. the screenplay. Um, I think it took me a while. I was so enamored of the acting in it, both Creeps and Manville and Lewis, that I actually for a while was so invested that it's like I ignored... I think you used the word meticulous, how meticulously crafted this film is and how expertly crafted right. it is in terms of every single facet of so, this. And I mean, look, I I think you've, we've debated this a little bit back and forth. I'm convinced that Paul Thomas Anderson is, is establishing himself as the greatest director of the entire generation. That his movies are different enough and unique enough to different time periods, different types of genres. Now, he is starting to develop, I think, a through line in the past few movies of kind of like a theme in some ways between them with some of the characters that he's focusing on. But I think that he's this generation's Kubrick. I mean, that's I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. But so, but he's also maturing, I think, a lot as a director, yes. even though I, I find The Master to be kind of a misstep because I'm not a fan of that movie really at all. Um... Like, I think you see, like, his his artistry develop. And what, so I'll, we, 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 we talked about this a little bit, you know, before the, the podcast tonight, but there's a scene early on in Phantom Thread where the camera's basically pacing him as he walks through a series of hallways. Mm -hmm. And he's talking and things are happening around him. And it's very... Like, the action itself around him is kind of frantic, but it's all very controlled. Mm -hmm. And the movement is controlled. And you compare that to something like in Boogie Nights. Like, for instance, um, early on in Boogie Nights, there's a scene in uh, in the nightclub where the camera's following um, Jack and uh, Roller Girl and um, uh, the um, Julianne Moore character yeah. as they're coming in. And it's so, like, frantic and chaotic, and it's the music and the lights, and, I mean, it serves the purpose of that movie, but it's, mm -hmm. like, to see a very similar scene, but done with such control and such, just, like, perfect timing of the way that everything flows together, it's... it's Which, I mean, Boogie Nights 2 had perfect timing i mean i, I i've seen a behind the scenes making of that boogie night scene but it's like he's he's matching he, he's learning to completely match and set up theme and mood through his camera work and his cinematography and his mise-en-scene and like you know like he's establishing the idea of control right as a filmmaker which is one of the major themes of this movie is control right and it's like he's he's really starting to I mean I'm not starting to I think he's been doing it for a while but it's like as much as I love there will be blood and think it's an incredible movie like you know probably one of the best of like the past 20 years I don't know if he's still if he gotten if he's getting, if he was completely at that point yet where it's like I feel like in this it's like pretty much everything is it's when I talked about like where I think that we were talking about a few weeks ago where it's like I think um what was it the uh Cronenberg movie uh that we were talking about Videodrome Videodrome I I was telling you where it's like I think like the plot and the and the and the subtext 
like even as a screenwriter, he's getting to the point where it's like I think those things are perfectly hand in hand with one another. Sure. Where I think there be, will be blood missed a little bit of that. I think like not always his direction always matched both at the same time, and it's like I think he's starting to really figure out how to bring every every facet together. And it's like I think you see that in Kubrick at times. I think you see in Hitchcock at times, and it's like. It's, but I, I just think that he's slowly becoming probably, probably the best filmmaker in America, at least. Yeah, I'm definitely always excited to see what comes next. And it's weird because, like, I, I tend to forget about him sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't even know that Phantom Thread existed until I saw it pop up on Amazon mm-hmm. for me to rent. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, you know, and it took me, I think, like a few weeks after it was available to even watch it. Which is weird because at one point, like, that would have been the most exciting thing to me as a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, But he's also gotten to the point where, like, so, as, like, a contrast, you look at somebody else who's considered to be one of the great American directors living, which is Tarantino, Mm -hmm. who's never been able to move past the hyper-stylized dialogue. Like, he's not able to, like, grow beyond that. And I'm really interested to see how, um, what's, what's the new movie called? American something? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested to see how that is, like, considering the subject matter. But, like, Anderson is really getting, like, masterful at writing dialogue, too. Mm -hmm. In ways where... There's like an economy of language where things are said and it's the combination of like the perfect actor delivering these perfect lines with these shots that are like there's scenes where he holds the camera on Lewis for long periods of time where Lewis is not saying anything. He's mm-hmm. just kind of like emoting like mm-hmm. with his face and with his mannerisms and he's got this like bald like hunched I, I can't even explain it it's like perfectly poised but still like wound really tight and the way that like he moves his limbs and his face and like stares at things and you see like the emotion in his eyes and it's just it's really brilliantly done and I I, I think I don't know I, I think it's pretty pretty close to like that that 91% like I agree with that like yeah. it's, it's pretty close to a perfect movie and I think to, to speak to that economy of language that you're talking about, I th- I think that's kind of what I'm talking about, at least from the screenwriting standpoint, is that he, the the it's naturalistic dialogue. It's something people would really say. It's how they would really say it. But also everything has that subtext to it that right. tells you something, that reveals character, that implies some sort of subtext to the movie. So it's just like the idea that he's he'll never get married because it would feel like a betrayal. Right. And it's like it's a it's a it's just a it comes out naturalistically during the course of their slightly awkward conversation as they're getting to know each other, but it reveals so much about that character right. and the passion that he feels. Like you said, he's married to the job. And it establishes that. And, and married I mean, to his sister in some ways. Too. In some way, yeah, absolutely. Like aside from the the sexual release that he has from these women that he sees, yeah. like his sister Right. Is his wife? What what does he call her? Um, shit. He always calls her the one thing. I can't remember what it yeah. is now. 
you old old so and so is that what yeah, it is yeah I, yeah something like that mm-hmm. um but like 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 just speaking about like what you just said the opening scene of this movie is brilliant to that regard too is like just him getting dressed yeah right like the right. scene of him like pulling on his socks mm-hmm. and putting on his pants mm-hmm. and you can feel without knowing anything about this character or without a single line of dialogue being spoken that this is almost like a fetishistic routine that this Uh man goes through and it's like perfectly done the way that everything like goes together. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like I'm the same way. Like when I get dressed, I get dressed the exact same way every single time. Like, and I can't deviate. Like it's weird. Like I've actually even thought about like, why do I, I do that? But Mm -hmm. like, it's interesting to see it. And it's like just this really brief nondescript, almost like meaningless scene, like has so much weight to it. Like as you go through the movie, I didn't think about it until just now, like yeah. when you were talking yeah. about that. But like, because, because everything matters, right? There's no, there's no real fluff to it, and I think that's it's what I complain about. Look, this movie was two hours and ten minutes, and it's like there is not a single wasted moment in the entire thing. Yeah. And I always complain about wasted time, and there's not any wasted time in this movie. A lot of like I, I didn't read much about the production, but I feel like it's a lot of natural light as well. Like everything feels mm-hmm. like it's lit by the things that are like actually illuminating the room or the sure the world and not like i don't know it, it just it wouldn't surprise me knowing how big of a kubrick fan he is that if he would go with the barry linden route yeah. of using natural light i yeah and i mean and we haven't even got into the idea of like to some degree like what this movie is saying and i don't know if we need to but it's like there's so much depth to this right. story and to these characters too on top of it like you know i mean like his obsession with his mother. I mean, like one of the scenes that stands out to me is when he's sick for the first time after being poisoned and he's, his, he sees his mother's like spirit, I guess. And is like sitting there, you know, who's not communicating with him. And he's wants to know what, why is she there? And then Alma comes into the room and starts nursing him. And I mean, he's obviously establishing like a link there, I think in some ways right. to the idea of, He's always wanted his mother with him, and here's a woman who's nursing him, and it's something that there's some part of him that desires that, that desires the mother figure, the nursing figure, and Alma, I guess, intuits that in some way. In some ways, I guess she intuits that because she realizes when he has his breakdowns after working so hard of how like open and honest and sensitive he is and all those kind of things. And that's what propels the story, I guess, is that she kind of understands him well enough. Right. That she, what does she say? It's like, sometimes he needs to slow down. Um, is, is what she says to the doctor, you know, and that's when you go into the whole, her poisoning him. Um, which is, I mean, it's, I mean, it's dark. This is such a dark movie in some ways. Like, this is such a dark movie, but it's also... Yeah, but it's it's so weird because, yeah. like, you almost can't falter for it. It's, sure. It's like... Right. It's what he needs. She's she's accurately diagnosed him. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a less talented director's hands, I think it would have been more, like, maudlin or... Sure. I don't know. Almost yeah. like... I mean, to the point that he willingly accepts it. Because yeah. he he realizes she's diagnosed him correctly, um, as well. So it's like he gets it, you know. Like she's right. He needs to slow down sometimes. I honestly expected early on, and I was pleased to see that it didn't happen. 
that there was going to be something with her like pushing Cyril out of the picture mm-hmm. and like usurping that role and there being like a falling out and yeah I actually kind of like the fact that like well, the Cyril liked her yeah like it plays against that type right. where it's not she she had the strength that Cyril didn't to stand up to him yeah and she respected her all my force and Cyril recognizes that like what you just said that Lewis eventually recognizes that she's basically giving him what he needs like mm-hmm. she's doing like her passion for him is like what needs to like keep him i don't know like healthy i guess to a point or alive maybe or i don't know something but yeah really really i just i don't know if i'm ever willing to put anybody in kubrick's like i don't know he needs he needs a larger filmography but i i i'm pretty firmly convinced I mean, he's that, approaching kubrick's filmography at this point what's yeah. he like four movies short maybe uh, or five movies short a little bit more than that i think one two three well he has punch drunk love too four one, five two, six seven eight this is eight yeah movie. so he's probably about like five five kubrick's away about like 13 so. yeah right so yeah yeah he's not so, that far off he's not that far off and it's really only 20 years well, I guess coming up on 30 now. Yeah. That he's been making movies. But like 26. But still, that's yeah. a pretty healthy clip over yeah, that time. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, and a, all, it's all, a solid career. Yeah. All worthy movies. And again, yeah. like even though like I kind of shit on The Master, like The Master still has a lot of amazing things in it. Like The Master's, to me, The Master is still a good movie. It's just that it's for Paul Thomas Anderson. It like you said, it's a misstep to me a little right. bit. Like it's it's it doesn't hold up to those other Well for me it's, those it's, other ones. it's the Jacqueline Phoenix character just kind yeah. of like muddies that movie a little too much. But man, there's scenes in that movie too. Yeah. Like I like Paul Thomas Anderson has this eye for filming architecture and mm-hmm. architecture against landscape maybe that's the way to put it or like just the way he films like the interior of a room that's just so perfect and completely unobtrusive to like what's happening but like everything just makes sense like there's a scene in the master where they're in the compound that he films with like the long benches or whatever Mm. and like the dark wood and it's like like the blue sky in the background and there's white and it's just, it's brilliant. Like, he's, I don't know. He's really good. So, Owen Gleiberman, um, oh. formerly of Entertainment Weekly, writes for Variety now. He um, he says that the film's seductive and absorbing, but it's also emotionally remote. The film is framed as a love story, but it never swoons, and it's enough to make you wonder, why does Anderson, whose work back in the late 90s, uh, that Paul sated with all kilter humanity now make dramas that are essentially didactic studies of fantastically cold brutes. He remains a he remains a filmmaking wizard, and Phantom Thread sweeps you up and carries you along much more to my mind than the Master did. Yet it's a thesis movie, the story of a bullying narcissist who lacks the ability to have a relationship in the outrageous way he's schooled in becoming a human being. It's the story of a control freak made by a control freak. Phantom Thread comes on for a good long stretch like Anderson's sprawling version of Rebecca or Suspicion, a romantic suspense thriller coursing with dread. I wish it had stayed on that track, 
But Anderson isn't content to make a black-hearted retro genre film. He's too ambitious. And once Alma exacts her revenge, the movie does something a little bizarre. It goes back to square one so that Reynolds, even after proposing to Alma, turns into the same old dick he's always been. The film in what should have been its culminating passages loses steam and grows repetitive, building towards a scene in which Reynolds eats an omelet colluding knowingly in his own punishment and reform it's supposed to be the film's capstone of perversity toxic masculinity toxifying itself but it just made me wish that anderson would stop making movies about people who are so stunted they can't help that he can't help adoring them for it you know i mean so he's not wrong in his in his like analysis but i think he misses the point Mm -hmm. like i think that is the point in that sometimes it feels unearned when it's my argument about um, Don Quixote and Adam Driver's character. Mm-hmm. Is that like, I don't know. Maybe it's not, maybe I just defeated my own argument. <laughs> hmm. Like you're, he's not going to learn his lesson and change. After one thing, you know what I mean? Like he's number one, he's a highly sought after, highly successful artist that's beloved by the most wealthy women in the country. And one instance isn't going to like erase decades of egocentricity and self-importance. You know what I mean? So like it, I don't need it to be Rebecca. Right. right. Like it doesn't. Well, we talked about the idea with the serial killer movies <coughs> of the idea of the serial killers in these movies being having com- a compulsion to kill. Like, I mean, yeah. this character is in in that sense is no different. He has a compulsion like right. he has to design these, you know, meticulously crafted halt couture, you know, for you know, the, the royalty of the country and, you know, these, you know, rich benefactors and he takes pride in doing that. And it's not even just pride in doing it. It's what, you know, he has this psychological thing with his mother that taught him how to sew that it's like, he has to, he has to do that. He has to pass it along. So it's like, it's, it's his entire life. It's what he does. It's who he is. And I think like that compulsion, it's like, if you want up to the point where he's poisoned and it's like he learns his lesson after the one time for someone who suffers that level of compulsion. Yeah, you're right. It wouldn't make right, any it feels sense. unearned. Yeah, right. And I think that like, I think the characters are interesting enough where, I don't know, like, maybe in this case I don't necessarily care so much about the plot as how... I don't know. Again, like, I understand completely what he's saying. And it's not yeah. like most criticism where I, like, shit on it. Sure. Like, I, I, I get it. I yeah. just think that he's missing the point. Right. And yeah. I think that's fine. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, he, he says something in here, too, that kind of, I think, almost hints at it being a little autobiographical. Like, where he makes a comparison between Woodcock and Anderson himself. 
in this and it seems to me that there's an implication i mean i think anytime that you have an artist be, as a main character there's always going to be reviewers that end up trying to right see some kind of autobiographical connection between the artist character and the director themselves or the screenwriter that's why you don't ever learn anything about anybody that makes any kind of art and you never <laughs> have to make that comparison right but it's like the thing is is like knowing what i do about anderson it's like yes he is very meticulous and like you know very much on a kubrick level of like how but he's not Woodcock here. Um, he's like, I mean, he's been mar- married to Maya Rudolph for I don't know how many years now, and they have four kids together. And it's like Woodcock, because we don't know if that's the truth or not. At the very end of this movie, like the idea that she sees the future and they have a baby, I, I, I'm not sure if that's reality. I, that's that's the hope. I think more. Right. Than I think that's. I think that's you getting a glimpse into her rationale behind doing what she's doing and that she feels like this is the future they could possibly have together and these are the compromises she's willing to make in order to like achieve that future yeah but it's it's, woodcock doesn't (coughs) feel like somebody who could be a father necessarily yeah i mean who knows i mean maybe yeah but it's like you know but i don't think it's anderson i don't think anderson's putting himself i don't don't see that as autobiographical yeah so i I, that's another just that's like going back and saying that um Lewis in There Will Be Blood is autobiographical. I mean, sure. it's the same idea. It's the sure. same drive and right. the same single-minded purpose, right. except... God, I always want to call him Swear Engine. What's his name in There Will Be Blood? Oh, uh, Daniel. Plain, plain View. Yeah, Plain View. Yeah. Like, Plain View's got no one to yeah. basically balance out his right. Right. egomaniacal drive to be the best. Right. Sure. It's yeah. like I drink your milkshake, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, I right, mean, it's yeah. like he never learns a lesson. Sure, yeah, it's very, very similar to the George Hurst portrayal, like in Deadwood. Right, he, just, he goes and goes and goes, and then he's done. And right. at least like Woodcock has found a balance. So even though it's a quote unquote type A personality, yeah. well, he's had a he's had a balance forced upon him that he's accepting. Yeah, well, and that however, and that's the difference, I think. Right, however like, you find it, you find it. Right, yeah, thing. yeah. Um, anyway, this is it's a it's a great movie. It's a brilliant movie. Yeah. It's it's a masterpiece, I think. Yeah. And I told you when I said that you should watch it. Um, I I think Boogie Nights is always going to be my favorite P.T. Anderson yeah. movie, just yeah. for a lot of reasons. But this is like my third or fourth favorite of yeah. his, and maybe even like it, it might be my second favorite. Like yeah. I really love this movie a lot. Yeah. Hard for me to like put it above Magnolia or um. There will be blood because I I think those movies are both yeah like I don't know yeah no I I, I it's it's too recent for me I mean watching this I mean it's it's definitely something that's going to require another viewing yeah. or two for me I think to have a fully solidified opinion I'd like him to come back into the modern age though when yeah I'd be interested to see what he could do there like I I I'd like to see something contemporary contemporaneous to yeah. Or at least, like, more recent than, like, the 1950s or the 1800s or sure. whatever. Or the Masters in, like, what, like, the 40s and 50s? 50s, yeah. When, yeah. Um, when maybe there's something about that time period. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there is some, like, element of him ex- examining, like, classic masculinity and trying to, like, smash classic masculinity up against different ideas. I, I, I think it's something certainly worthy of discussion or thinking about. Um, absolutely, and like in what in the, especially in his last three movies, I think. Um, you know that every time I want to say Philip Seymour Hoffman's name, I come close to saying C. Thomas Howell, C. <laughs> which is not at all the same. Soul Man, right? Yeah. right. Um, another classic of modern cinema. Side Out, 
Uh, I've never seen Side Out. I don't think. No, I don't know. We were talking about Side Out. Uh, the only person that I think I've that knows that movie is um, Aiden. Um, no side outs. See so Tom Sound, Peter Horton. Uh, Peter Horton is the down out, down and out former beach volleyball hero. Oh yeah. And see Thomas Howe somehow is playing volleyball and then goes and recruits him like to right, be his right. partner. It's I I've seen that. It's an awesome, awesomely terrible '80s movie. Yeah, I think I've seen two thirds of that movie on USA on like a Saturday <laughs> morning. Right, that's about right. Okay, so uh, number one on your list surprising after we just spent probably 35 minutes talking about <laughs> Phantom Thread but uh number 1 is Three Women it's a 1977 film directed by Robert Altman uh starring Shelley Duvall, Sissy Spacek and Janice Rule it has a 96% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 86% from audiences you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much I mean really it's it's hard to, like, talk about the plot of this movie because it's more of an examination of, like, identity and the psychology of identity, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, Shelley Duvall is a self-absorbed but well-meaning woman that works in, where are they, in Arizona, I think, or something? Mm-hmm. Um Somewhere like therapeutic, in the Southwest, therapeutic or... home for retired people. Mm-hmm. It's like a day spa where people get like mm-hmm. um, physical therapy and like water therapy. Uh, Sissy Spacek plays a recent um, transplant to the area who's like gotten a job there and is paired with Shelley Duvall as like her partner. Um, there's a lot of other women that work there that are all very like condescending in the way that they approach um both of these women mm-hmm. spacex being like reserved and kind of uh mousy and duvall being just loud and like motor mouth talkative mm-hmm. um spacex starts to adopt duvall's personality traits um and then it feels almost like a single white female situation, but then like they sort of reverse those traits where SpaceX becomes the more like dominant personality and mm-hmm. Duval switches to being the more like submissive demure personality. And then there's a pregnant lady who's making a mural. Right. Um Willie. Yeah. And then her husband who's the alcoholic brute that Right. Sleeps with Duval. Duval's character at one point. That's and what leads to Pinky trying to commit suicide by jumping in the pool. In the pool, yeah. And then that's when the switch really happens. Like Yeah, when the, she comes back, she when becomes she comes back. The... And then it all leads to Willie's bur- dying and bur- uh, the the child dying and right. childbirth that she um and then and then both of them adopting her personality in right. a lot of ways. Yeah, with it ending with the implication that they might have all killed the Willie's the husband, the alcoholic right. husband, I, who's I think that's, slept with all of them at this point. Right, I don't, I don't think, think that's an implication. I think that's what you're actually supposed right, to yeah. take out of them. Yeah. Like, I think well, I think I read even Altman said that it's like he has he, he would suspect that he's probably buried under those tires in the, in the final right. scene. Yeah. So, full disclosure. 
I love Sissy Spacek and I love Shelley Duvall. Um, two of my absolute favorite actresses of any time period, but specifically of like the 1970s and early 80s. Um, we we talked jokingly last week, I think, about Face Off. Mm-hmm. Somebody mentioned Face Off as being like a good example of a movie, yes. whereas a movie that I liked was a bad example. Might have been Owen Gleiberman, yeah. Yeah, probably Asshole. Um, no, it's Lisa Schwartzbaum. That's who it was. It was, yeah. it was. the Chopsaki. Mm-hmm. What movie was she talking about? Uh, what did I? Was it The Matrix? Right, or? it was The Matrix. Yeah, yeah Chopsaki. Yeah, racist. Yeah. Um, this is it's. I do not like Robert Altman. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. say that I like a couple Robert Altman movies. Mm-hmm. I find Robert Altman to be like masturbatory in a lot of ways and not able to keep like a thread or focus in most of his movies. I think they kind of just meander. Um, and I think that's true here in a lot of ways. Like, I don't know that there's necessarily a super strong narrative to this movie, but as a psychological examination of like, you know, Pinky's like a, a cipher in the beginning. Like she just is like, Early on, when she, you know, because she's fully aware that everyone in the rehabilitation center does not like her and is antagonistic towards her, but there's a lot of like little moments early when SpaceX mimes like movements and facial tics and things that people say, like repeats things, and she's looking for someone to like latch onto to like gain a personality from. And Duvall's, like, performance is so ridiculous for the first, like, 40 minutes of the movie. Like, just the constant stream of, like, just words. And it's like, oh, I have this recipe for this thing, and I made this tuna casserole, and the tuna casserole came out like this. It's so painful. It's so painful It is, and it's because it's, like... It's not even self-absorption because she really thinks that she's relating to other people. It's just the absolute lack of self-awareness that no one cares about the minutia of her life. Uh-huh. And she just can't stop herself. And it's when very, she it's finds... It's very reminiscent of somebody we used to know. Right. <clears throat> when she finds someone that's actually receptive to that, it bothers her. That, you know... I mean, that's part of the... Like what in like leading up to the suicide attempt is just the idea that like Pinky is just trying to like live her life mm-hmm. with her. And it takes her forever to I guess like recognize that that's what's happening, but I don't know. I, it's hard for me to like there's so many small things in the movie that are just come down to the performances because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily like Altman as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some shots in this movie, especially of the desert. Uh, the way that he films things, it just makes it look like dry and hot and barren. It's almost like a wasteland in a lot of ways when he's filming parts of this movie. But it's the performances, especially of those two. I, I just find him to be like amazing and compelling. And again, you know, a lot of that comes down to like my personal preference for them as actresses. Um, and just the fact that I lied, I really love them both so much. Yeah. Um, and they're very different. Ty- they're all different representations of types types of women. 
like all three of the characters. There's like obviously Willie's associated with like kind of like the strong creative mother right figure with her being pregnant and Yeah, um, she's 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 the earth mother. Right. And then Pinky is the young, kind of unformed. She's the shrinking violet. Yeah, character. and then Will or uh, Millie is, Millie. yeah, um, is this woman who's trying to be this working girl who is also trying to be very she wants, tip, typical of like she's always talking about her recipes. She's she wants talking, to be urbane. Yes, she wants right. to be domestic but still but fun and but it's stuck in this kind of like southwestern right. state where she can't be those things in a lot of ways so we so i think there's a lot going on in terms of there is a lot and we we talked earlier like you said that you wonder if there's some like like feminist viewpoint that's coming out here mm. and i conversely wonder if it's almost misogynistic mm. in some ways because it's such like an unflattering look at the female personality types. Now, granted, like there's not much flattering about anybody else in the movie. Either. No, like it's definitely not a positive portrayal of anyone. No, if you want to talk about toxic masculinity, right. it's like the husband is certainly yeah, representative of that. Yeah, but. absolute piece of shit. Yeah, but it's hard for me to say because, like, I, I don't know. I mean, by the end, though, they're, they they do seem. But then it almost becomes like a hive mind collective type thing. Yes. Where they don't need. Right. That man sure. anymore. They have each other. Right. And they can exist. Mm-hmm. And they exist as like a portmanteau of like all three of their personalities mm-hmm. blending together. Right. In like a collective. Sure. And again, like. I wonder... And it's almost like grandmother, mother, daughter at right. that point, well, the way it ends up. Is it is that feminist or is it mm. like an unflattering view of like women? You know, because I, I would think that like from a feminist perspective, you would want to think that every woman is an independent being mm. that's not defined by her gender, that she's defined by the multitude of things that make a person a person. And towards the end of this movie, it almost feels like they're joined together. You know, like, yeah, I, I think you said it exactly right. I think that's the archetypes they take is the grandmother, mother, and child. Mm-hmm. But they're just joined together by nothing but their shared experience with an awful man and their gender, really. Right. Sure. And I have read no criticism of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because this is on the list of me watching this recently. So, I, I've seen this movie like three times, and the last, before I watched it this time, it's been five or six years since I've seen it. Okay. And it popped up on like my recommendations, and I was like, oh, this movie sounds good. Like, I like Sissy Spacek and uh-huh. um, Shelley Duvall, and I started watching it, and like five minutes in, I'm like, fuck, I've seen this movie like twice. Yeah. And I was really mad at myself that I had forgotten about it. Right. Um, I've read no criticism of this movie. I have yeah. no idea, like... Well, I mean, if you if you mean criticism just in general, I mean, like, a lot of people are very positive about this movie. Ebert has it on his greatest movies list. I, um, I agree with that. And, um, 
Now, the, the, the only top critic I could find that had negative things to say about this is our um, good friend Dave Kerr from the Chicago Reader. Of course. Oh, man. Please don't let me agree with Dave Kerr. <laughs> he says, Robert Altman's would-be American art film is murky, snide, and sloppy, but the director's off the hook because he dreamed it all. I don't know if you know the story of this is that um, his wife was pregnant in the hospital and there was complications and he had basically had a fever dream where this story came to him and then he just developed out plot points from the dream um, for this movie. It's pretty awesome. So um, he says, yeah, he's off the hook because he dreamed it all. More more Dave Kerr snark. Um, Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall are two Texas girls who meet while working in a California sanatorium courtesy of eight and a half he puts in parentheses and exchange identities while altman struggles with feminism and the american dream as usual direct the director plainly despises his characters but offers no alternative to their pettiness although his sneaky jokes at their expense give the film the only glimmer of style I mean, that's pretty... I, I've learned Dave Kerr's language. Dave Kerr hated this movie. Right. I don't think Dave Kerr understands movies. Is it a sanatorium? Is technically... What's the word? Sanatorium? Like, that's not what this is. Is it where they work at? Like yeah, they, they work, work at a rehabilitation Rehabilitation center. Right. Yeah, okay. I mean, maybe you could call it a sanatorium. Maybe, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not speaking, like, 1970s. Yeah. I don't know. Um... Yeah. I don't agree. With Murky, that. snide, and sloppy. Right, I don't think any of those things are true. It's definitely not sloppy. I mean, if anything, it's... It's hazy. Mm-hmm. It's dreamlike. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing sloppy. It's not murky. Like, again, like, murky to me means that, like... I think that when you're watching this movie, you understand what the movie's trying to say. Now, maybe I'm not interpreting it correctly, but mm-hmm. I never felt like, oh, like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, and to me, that's what murky is. Right, yeah, I mean, you, I, I think you understand the plot. Po- although I don't know if I understand all the plot points. Um, so I mean, it could be maybe it means it physically like kind of like misty almost. I mean, because the film quality does have a little bit of that element potentially, but I don't know if he is using double meanings or what who knows dave kerr's maybe beyond me right but i do have a question about the plot though about something being murky is when her parents come to visit after she survives the suicide attempt right and she doesn't know who they are what the hell is that about do you know is that her losing her identity no 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 i i think the implication of her coming to wherever in the desert dodge city or whatever it is um is to escape something terrible that was happening to her where she came from. But here's the thing is the actor that plays the dad is like 90 something years old. Right. And I think that that's. And like she's like supposed to be like 21 or something maybe. Like, I mean, he had her, they had the, and I'm assuming the mother would have to be a somewhat comparable age. I mean, we, you guys knew a family that had old parents and young children. And I grew up with a couple families where, like... In their 70s? Right. We had a... I I worked with a guy who had five or six siblings. And we were in high school together. He was 17 years old. And his father was, like, 69. 
And the mother was like in her like early sixties. I mean, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Late fifties, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm looking up oldest childbirth right now. Um, sixty six years old. Okay, is the record. So again, like I I always got the impression that there was something terrible in Pinky's past or current life that she was leaving on the whim of just going out and finding a job somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that that was her like completely separating herself from that past life. Sure. By and embracing taking the name pinky and right, know, the right, newness yeah. of sure. the life that right. she had found. Yeah. And that's why she's so open and such like a sponge in a lot of ways yeah. and such a, like a timid, like wilting, whatever is that she's trying to find the thing to like form her personality and why at the end she refers to Shelly Duvall as mom, you know yeah. I mean? Like, so does his complaint about the idea of despising his characters, but offering no alternatives. Um, does that, does that, does that tie into some in, in any, in any way to what you're saying about maybe it's being anti-feminist? Well, maybe, but like, I don't agree. I don't agree that Robert Altman despises these characters. Yeah. I don't think there's, I, I mean, I don't know that they're, I mean, I think there's a set, I, I mean, I, to me, it's like, maybe it's me, but I thought that the film was trying to make me feel bad for Millie. I think so. Why would you include those scenes where people are actively talking about her behind her back and making fun of her and making so, fun of her to her face? Like, why would you include that if you weren't supposed to feel bad? For right. Her? And I, I actually just thought about this um, while we were talking. So, number one, I don't think that Altman. They're not detestable people. You're not supposed to. Right. I mean, like, they might be annoying sure. or weird, but you're not supposed to hate them. Right. Like, if you come off hating those people, I think that says more about you than yeah. Altman's, like, direction of them, because I don't mm-hmm. see that. Maybe the whole idea of this movie is that, like, you make the family you want out of the people you want rather than, like, who you were like forced to be born to like, maybe that's the thing is it because again, like the whole, to me, the biggest driving forces of this movie are the psychology of identity Mm -hmm. and the idea that like, you're not who other people think you are. You're who you make yourself, which I think is the same thing, but like, you know, the fact that they shift identities like yeah. three times in the movie in a lot of ways. Be- I thought it was interesting too about the workplace. There's something going on with the workplace too. There's something being said there, like in terms of like just being beholden and like being, having to have some sort of like this like strict structure to, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And I also thought it was interesting that the um, traditionally, the traditional roles are swapped of the of the husband and wife that run that place where it's like he's kind of like more of like the uh lackadaisical maybe manipulative one where she's like the 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 taskmaster right and i so there's something certainly going on i think there's something going on with uh like workplaces and i think there's still something going on that and maybe he's right about that aspect of it. Like as Altman, even though he's being snide, is he's struggling with feminism? Like there's something going on there that I don't know what he's trying to get at necessarily. Maybe I don't know. There, there's a lot. Yeah. Like ever. Like as we sit here and talk, like I keep thinking about different scenes in the movie yeah, and different right. things. And yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones you could do a deep dive on, I think, for a while. But ultimately, like, I don't find Kerr to be accurate in his estimation. And I really think that, like, I think there is, like, some sympathy and some empathy you can have. I mean, especially if you've ever been in an awkward situation or you've, like, worked in a workplace where people, like, you're the odd man out or whatever. I mean, that's that's just what it is. Right. The people they work with are... The twins, you know, I mean, there's, like, so many, like, conceited jerks in that spa or whatever. Right. Yeah. They just, they form their own unit around what they need right. and they become, like, to each other, you know. Yeah. I mean, because Millie, not Millie, um, Willie, towards the end, like, she almost becomes the, the, well, Millie becomes, like, the man in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, she's sure. the bartender, you right. know. Pinky's the daughter, Willie's the mom at home, right. like creating the yeah. like. So they form their own like nuclear family. It's sure. just a different dynamic than sure after being rejected by so many other places and society in yeah, general. Right, yeah. Really, so yeah. I don't know, but yeah. like no, it's interesting. I I don't like again to argue that point. I don't think that Altman hates any of these characters. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of a lot of films of the seventies, especially like the avant garde stuff. And in a lot of ways, this is, like, the highest compliment I'll ever play to Robert Altman. Because, again, like, I hate Robert Altman most of the time. This is a very, like, Michelangelo Antonioni feeling movie. Hmm. Like, it feels like that, like, new wave, like, late 60s cinema. Like, European cinema and the way that it, like... It's not necessarily forcing a strict narrative on you. It's just showing you things and letting you build a narrative yourself. And like, I'm always a sucker for stuff like that. Like I'll always love those kind of movies. Like you don't need to like force ideas down my throat. Just like show me things and let me make my own narrative. Like, and the dreaminess of it, like this reminds me a lot of ways of La Ventura, which is one of my absolute favorite movies ever. Like probably a top 20 movie of all time, which is an Antonioni movie. Um, just in the sense that there isn't, like, clear resolution. Like, you really do just feel like you're watching... Like, I can see that it came out of a dream and that he right. built plot points out of it because that's what it feels like a lot sure. of the time. Yeah. Okay. And the hotel, yeah. you know, like the motel or whatever you want to call it, like, there's a lot of almost, like, Lynchian feeling to the way that, like, that stuff is filmed, you know, especially, like, yeah. around the pool and the, right, and the individual apartment and, rooms yeah. or whatever. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's... It's a very beautiful, dreamy, mysterious, complicated movie yeah. that never forces any of those things on you and has perf- like great performances by two of my favorite actresses of all time. Okay. Um, so that's our list for the week. Yeah. Uh, remember that um, you can like us on Facebook. Um, you can find us on pretty much uh, any major podcast area. Uh Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Um, any of your aggregate aggregates um, that you listen to podcasts on. Uh, you can also contact us on at gmail.com, uh, our gmail.com address, which is two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and the number five. Two guys five movies at gmail.com. We will be back in two weeks to do another slightly special episode where we'll be doing sort of like a retrospective um, look back at the MCU Marvel Universe um, now that Endgame uh, has come out and I've seen it um, myself now uh, so we can kind of talk about that 
decade long journey of what yeah, they what they what they crafted. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to kind of just break that down some, think about it, uh, and then we'll be back at the end of the month after that uh, with the top B horror movies of 1984. Uh, which is my job for this week, I think, is to start watching those. So, did I give you that list yet? You did, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was. It, lo- it looked fine. Oh right, right. I had to yeah. take off for Friday the Thirteenth. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. You did. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> okay, so thank you everyone for listening. Remember that um, you know if if you wanted to help us out at all, the best way you can do it is to um, share things on Facebook, to leave reviews, you know, leave ratings on any uh, podcast uh, app that you use. Um, so thank you again, and have a great weekend. Yep, have a good night.